Physician activities reviewed through the peer review process may pose liability under the False Claims Act, including the Stark Law. Although peer review is broad, peer review may be used for federal actions. But what should a hospital do? Well, listen to this episode, and I will tell you what to do. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, I am going to tackle the interplay between peer review activities and compliance in legal obligations under the False Claims Act, including civil monetary penalties, the anti-kickback statute, and the Stark Law. But first, I probably need to introduce what I'm not going to cover in this episode. I am not going to do a deep dive into the peer review process. As you you will find out in this episode, peer review is very state-specific, and I may cover an episode at some point in the future, but I'm not going to do it in this episode. Secondly, I'm not going to discuss the specific requirements of reporting under the National Practitioner Data Bank. Although some of the issues that I will be covering in this episode may be reportable events under the National Practitioner Data Bank, that's not the intention of this episode. This episode is going to be focusing on, primarily from a compliance legal perspective, the interplay between the peer review medical staff activities and compliance and legal obligations that may impact the federal statutes like the False Claims Act, uh, the Stark Law, the Anti-Kickback Statute, etc. But before I begin, I would like to recommend a book for all of you. I, I know I'm not Oprah, so I don't have my the book club of the month, but this book is called Blind Eye, and it was the author is James Stewart. Again, it's Blind Eye, and this was actually referred to me by a chief executive officer for a hospital system where I was working with this CEO on a compliance-related issue under the False Claims Act, the Stark Law, that also had peer review interplay. And this is a book uh, written about a a physician serial killer by the name of Michael Swango. And this is a little excerpt about the book. It said, no one could believe that the handsome young doctor might be a serial killer. Wherever he was hired, in Ohio, Illinois, New York, South Dakota, Dr. Swango at first seemed like a model physician. Then his patients began dying under suspicious circumstances. 
blind eye describes the professional hierarchy where doctors repeatedly accepted the word of fellow physicians over that of nurses, hospital employees, and patients, even as horrible truths began to emerge. And so James Stewart actually went through and interviewed people that were involved with Dr. Swango, and and this is before a lot of the issues dealing with peer review uh, became an important point by legislation. And that's in part the reason why a lot of legislation has occurred is because physicians, uh, before the enactment of the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act uh, in 1986, all this documentation and data was maintained by states. So if you had a, and I'll put this in air quotes, a bad physician actor, all a physician had to do is to go from one state to another, like Dr. Swango did. Uh, But peer review actually started in 1952 by the Joint Commission. Uh, But they also discovered that some physicians were using the peer review process in order to economically abuse other members of the medical staff. So that's the reason why in 1986, Congress enacted the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act uh, for greater transparency and reporting of physician conduct from a quality perspective. And arising out of that act is the National Practitioner Data Bank, where conduct, certain conduct as specified in the National Practitioner Data Bank have to be reported. And this is a repository where other hospitals and medical providers can gain access to the quality information regarding physicians if there are issues uh, with a particular physician. So peer review is supposed to address the clinical and other patient care concerns through a confidential review process. Uh, But compliance, as we all know, promotes openness so that information needed to identify problems and improve care, as well as concerns with respect to billing, coding, and documentation will be shared. But the compliance program cannot address issues that never come to its attention. So you can see the interplay between peer review, where peer review needs to be protected from a confidentiality process, versus compliance is more about openness and reporting. And if you are a board member of a hospital system, you're responsible for both. You're responsible for the peer review process to make sure that the functions are being implemented appropriately, as well as a board member, the board is responsible for compliance. And I'll probably emphasize this a couple of times in this episode, but peer review is state-specific, so there are state laws that govern the peer review process. There is no, and let me emphasize, there is no federal peer review protection. So as I'm going to get into federal statutes, and if a case is being brought by the government or a quitam relator, then those are federal statutes, and that's in contrast with medical malpractice, but those are federal statutes for which the peer review protection does not apply because there is no federal peer review protection. However, for malpractice, malpractice is a state law process, and therefore the state law peer review protection does kick in. According to the Joint Commission, areas that medical staff needs to be concerned about from a peer review process perspective is the quality of patient care, medical and clinical knowledge of the clinicians, including physicians, practice-based learning and improvement, interpersonal communication skills, 
professionalism of the physician and system-based or community-based practices to ensure that the physician and clinicians are performing consistent with community standards for their specialty. But after the Joint Commission required peer review, again, back in 1952 until 1986, physicians were concerned about participating in the peer review process because they were concerned about their personal liability for taking a clinical quality action against a physician. So if I was on a peer review committee and I recommended that a privilege be terminated for a particular physician, my concern as a participating physician in in that peer review process was that the physician in question could hold me liable for their loss of revenue or their income or their career uh, if I took an adverse action or if I was a, a participant in that adverse action. So this is an important point from a peer review perspective is that peer review should be an ongoing process. And obviously, according to medical staff bylaws, there is a specific procedure that is supposed to be followed with respect to peer review once you get to a particular level. But if you're simply a physician reviewing random medical records, if you are like the medical director of department, you should be reviewing medical records of, of physicians. And if something looks a little bit you know, contrary to uh, the quality of care or there was an unexpected outcome, a conversation between two physicians in the hallway about the outcome, that is peer review protected. It does not protect the medical record. It does not protect the outcome of the performance by that physician. So peer review protects deliberations and assessments. Uh, with respect to physician performance. And these are actions that are taken in good faith by the participating physicians for monitoring, uh, for the possible restriction of privileges, for recommending oversight when a physician is performing a particular service, or the termination of certain privileges or elimination of privileges. Now, those are all part and covered by the peer review protection. So let's say, for example, you do have a physician that there are some questions regarding quality of care. And a peer review process would dictate that the medical records are sent out to a physician reviewer of that same specialty. Then as part of that process, those physicians' conclusions, uh, when they were sent out for peer review, are peer review protected. But the peer review protection basically protects those records from discovery by outsiders. So those are individuals outside of the organization, outside of the hospital. But that does not mean that non-physicians who perform quality review or individuals like compliance officers who perform a compliance function within the hospital, it does not mean that they cannot review peer review documents. They can so the peer review protection is basically a protection from outsiders, like a malpractice attorney would like to get a copy of the peer review. That is protected by the peer review statutes in most states. And simply labeling documents in the ordinary course of the hospital's business as peer review documents is not sufficient to attach the peer review protection, much like with the attorney-client privilege. Just because you include a lawyer uh, in a string of recipients in an email does not make that email attorney-client protected. 
So now I'm going to get into the root of this episode. And the, the major issue is, let's say that you have a case, let's say that you had somebody, and I'm going to refer to the MIDAS reporting process. A lot of hospitals have this MIDAS reporting process where any personnel within the hospital can go into the MIDAS system and allege anything uh, for openness purposes. And so this is highly promoted within hospitals and should be. But sometimes hospitals would say anything that deals with a physician interaction, let's say that you have an employee who enters into the system that they believe that Dr. Wade is documenting in medical records things that did not happen. And so he's falsifying, Dr. Wade is falsifying documentation in the medical record. Now, some hospitals would say, okay, that's an allegation against a physician. I'm going to refer that to the medical staff under peer review. Now, the disconnect here is that's also a compliance concern. If the documentation in the medical record was falsified by Dr. Wade, and that set up a billing for that procedure or that encounter, that could be a false claim. So whoever is monitoring the MIDAS system needs to be astute enough to understand whether or not this needs to be reported to the medical staff, medical staff only, if it's just part of a normal peer review function, or if it should simultaneously be reported uh, to compliance so that compliance could review and evaluate the issue uh, from a compliance perspective, primarily under the False Claims Act and a kickback statute and Stark Law. And when I was in-house, and now that I'm outside console advising hospitals and compliance officers and in-house console on these issues, I would strongly recommend that there is a dual process. So let's say that that report uh, that Dr. Wade was documenting services not rendered in the medical record, that report should go to both the medical staff for peer review process, as well as the compliance or legal function for review for a false claim. And then each should have a parallel track. So if the compliance or legal department believes that medical records need to be sent out for review and analysis and protection of the hospital under the False Claims Act or civil monetary penalties, then there should be independent review that is separate and distinct from the review that's performed by the peer review function. So if the peer review function wanted to send medical records out for review, now we're dealing with two individuals or two physicians of the same specialty that are reviewing these medical records. And I believe that that's a pure process versus relying on one reviewer. So this way that if it ends up being an issue that needs to be self-disclosed to the government or self-reported to the OIG DOJ or CMS, then we have an independent evaluation of that physician's performance. And let's say that we've got a trend of a physician that is upcoding. And so we need to have a reviewer that is reviewing that issue from an upcoding perspective. That should be a separate reviewer from the reviewer that was performing the peer review function. The peer review function is primarily focused on quality of care. And so the legal compliance function dealing with that same issue, same physician, should actually occur through a separate reviewer so that way that there is separate documentation that could be used in a self-report. 
And for you CEOs or CFOs that are listening, yes, that does increase the expense, but it's better for the protection of the peer review process. So that way that we can say that there's a separate and distinct peer review process. Now, as part of the compliance function or the legal function to review these claims for a potential self-report, the question is, well, can the compliance officer also look at, or the legal counsel look at the review that is performed by the outside physician reviewer through the peer review process? And the answer is yes. Because again, it's protection of those documents from the outside uh, is the peer review protection, not protection from review and evaluation from the inside. And there has been a string of cases where there were issues that arguably were protected through the peer review process, but, but because we were dealing with federal statutes that the government or the QUITAM relator was able to obtain the information through the peer review process. But again, if we separate the two and we have a compliance review that is simultaneously being performed with the peer review review, then uh, it's easier to try to protect the, the separate information and we can more strongly advocate that the peer review documents should be protected because we had a separate review under the False Claims Act or Stark Law or the other federal statutes. So under peer review, and this is where the Quitam bar would actually go, is that the underlying facts are not protected by peer review. Just labeling documents as peer review protected does not make them peer review confidential. There's no federal privilege, like I indicated, like the, say that's a federal claim of discrimination or the, the False Claims Act. There's no federal privilege that applies to those type of federal claims. And although that they are protected the review process is protected from individuals outside the organization like malpractice attorneys, those within the hospital who have a need to know can review those documents. And I know in this episode, I've heavily emphasized the False Claims Act, but there are some other federal statutes that could apply that the state law peer review protection does not protect the documents or review. Uh, so like a HIPAA privacy rule violation or EMTALA or federal laws regarding clinical research. And what I'm going to say next is probably going to open up a whole can of worms. Uh, but if it is sensed by the legal department or the compliance department that the peer review process is being used to economically harm a physician, and so it's really not a quality of care, They're doing, uh, physicians are doing this because of an economic advantage, or if the peer review process is being used to discriminate against an individual for one of the protected classes or a protected disability, then the, that becomes a compliance or legal concern. And so therefore, then the compliance department and legal department need to have access to the review documents to ensure that they are monitoring the review process to ensure that the physicians are operating the peer review function in good faith. Now, some people on the peer review side would say, well, those are all protected documents and therefore you cannot have access to them. As I indicated, if they're internal and there's a reason for that individual like the legal department or the compliance officer to review, then they can review. The protection is for outside individuals, people outside of the organization. Like I said before, malpractice attorneys, uh, they cannot gain access to the, the peer review procedures, the documentation of peer review, 
the analysis, minutes of meetings, or the outside reviewer's assessment of the physician's professional conduct. I guess I should probably also say that the it is also true from the compliance function. Let's say that we have a compliance hotline complaint about a physician that we believe is a quality of care issue. Then the compliance officer needs to inform the medical staff regarding that complaint. So that way the medical staff can review that issue under peer review uh, to see whether or not the quality of care issue is indeed a quality of care issue. So even though I've been emphasizing the peer review side and, and bringing in compliance. Compliance should also bring in the medical staff and peer review side if there are complaints. But, you know, a physician, if a physician just has a concern about a fellow physician and that is conducted uh, through the peer review process, then that technically would not need to be disclosed. So a physician peer-to-peer would not need to be disclosed. So now this brings me to the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is if your organization is using a MIDAS or internal reporting process and it involves a physician's quality performance, that individual needs to be well-trained to understand that the issue being reported through the process could simultaneously be both a peer review issue as well as a compliance issue. Captain Integrity punch point number two is that peer review documents can be reviewed by other appropriate individuals within the hospital, including the legal department and compliance department. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is peer review issues could simultaneously be a false claim. And great liability can occur within a hospital if there is not appropriate linkage between the peer review activities and the compliance function, if there are issues under the billing, coding, and documentation, and the receipt of reimbursement from payers, including Medicare and Medicaid. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.